Welcome back to the Successful Survivors Podcast. We are here for you if you have survived childhood trauma. You're in the right place. We are your tribe. This is a safe place. And we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. So today we have Diana Mosher and Don Windle, Chris Chmielewski, and Lee Esau, and myself, your host, Rhonda Shortino. United and it feels so good. So I want us to talk today. I want us to pick up where we left off in our last podcast. Uh, Lee, you shared about how when you were a kid, um, you it was like you didn't even exist before you came into uh, foster care and was adopted. You talked about how you couldn't even talk about. And now the young people coming out of foster care, and by the way, in case you don't know, thousands of kids uh, exit the foster care system every single year in the United States. Um, Chris, you're our resident expert, uh, being the publisher of Foster Focus magazine. Tell us about, you know, how many kids age out every single year and how many wind up homeless and, you know, all of that stuff. Can we get serious now? 20,000 kids uh, age out every year. Uh, only 3% graduate from college. Uh, I think the numbers the last I saw was something like 40% would be pregnant either in or within the first couple of years of leaving care as far as the female population goes. Um, homelessness is hard to track. Uh, I've heard anywhere from half the homeless are former foster kids to you know, 40%. It, it varies on who you talk to. Um, the reason that I started the magazine is because when I aged out, there was no resources. I didn't completely understand what had just happened to me. Uh, and, and I needed some facts and figures to kind of help me maneuver. And when I saw there weren't any, uh, I made my own. And uh, yeah, so yeah, 20,000 every year. Right now we're at 450,000 kids in care at the moment, I think. Uh, and so, and that's been, that's down a little bit from a few years ago, but that's been a steady number since I've had the magazine. It's always been, you know, 425 to 475,000 kids every year in care. And that 20,000 number has been consistent that whole time. So, okay, so I had to pick up my phone and do this because I can't do math in my head. 20,000 kids a year. That's 55 kids every single day. Yeah, that's an NFL roster. Okay, 55 kids every single day. And when you think about them becoming homeless, and we know from Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice that within 48 hours of being homeless, a young person is approached by a trafficker. And we know that by the time they're approached by the fourth time by the trafficker, they go. And that's how it starts. And so I always think, okay, so there's all this money, federal money, you know, that goes toward dealing with the homeless crisis, dealing with substance abuse disorder, dealing with criminal behavior, dealing with human trafficking, all this kind of stuff. And I think, well, you know, couldn't you just go upstream a little bit before kids age out of foster care, before they become homeless, before they become trafficked, before the trafficker pushes drugs on them in order to get them to be compliant, all of those things. What if we took all the money that we spend reacting to all of that stuff and put it into the care of kids, foster kids, before they fall off the cliff, 55 of them today. Today, another 55 tomorrow, another 55 the next day. 
It drives me crazy. Absolutely mental. <laughs> because I was homeless when I was eight years old. I know what it feels like to be homeless. You're dirty. You're scared. You're cold. You can't really sleep because it's when you sleep that even worse things happen to you. And whatever you were, you managed to take with you gets stolen. So you literally, I mean, I'm talking literally are alone in the world and hungry. So then when the trafficker comes along and goes, oh, hey, you're still here. Nobody's coming around to see about you. Oh, gosh, I bet you're hungry. You know what? I have my lunch. I'll, I'll just share with you. And they go. The devil himself could walk up with a burger and fries and you're like, yeah. I think that it's so important for us. The people who have lived through childhood trauma, that we survived it. We've created good lives for ourselves. We're trying to help other survivors who are on the path behind us where we used to be. I think it's important for us to be heard. When I see people who learned what they learned about child welfare in a classroom, then they're the ones who testify before Congress. Or they're the ones who are picked up in an article by Time Magazine or USA Today or some national. And I think, wait. Hello. Hello. How about you actually interview somebody who lived it? So what do you think, Don, about talking about lived experience? You work in a youth shelter, so you're, you know, you're, you're with kids all the time. You know, um, well, as you were talking, I was remembering that we just had a lab loss. It's supposed to be apartments and um, or it's changing out. And I thought, yes, this is it. This is good. We're doing this. So, um, you know, the federal government is the one giving us the money. So federal and state didn't agree. And so now we have to be willing to give foster kids and any other kids who are homeless and at that age. And I said, you know, that's really that's really sad. I said, sometimes you just need to give a certain group some, something to encourage them, to uplift them and to just be there for them. And I asked, um, I said, who, who I'll talk to the federal government? Was it people who had lived through this stuff? and needed a home and was scared about going out and living on their own. I had no, like I had a foster family and it was a nice home as far as physically nice, but I didn't learn how to budget. I didn't learn how to apply for an apartment or medical or any of that. So they're like, well, I don't know. It was, a, it was a DHS workers. I'm like, okay. So some of them were lived experiences. Some of them weren't because not all DHS workers have lived through that. So, um, I think just lived, lived experience really, I mean, you just, like you said, you're always saying you can't, can't get it in a book, right? We can, you know, share stuff that, you know, books don't teach us. And we have different um, things we're tuned to because of what we've lived through. That somebody who is just has book smarts or lived in a, a, a decent family would never get or would never have. Um, and we see things a little bit differently. So. I, I, I hear you. And um yeah, I don't, you know, I don't mean to minimize the contribution of our, the people I call our allies, you know, the people who did have great families and they, and they're sad that we didn't and they want to help. I love that. I want, you know, we need our allies. I mean, the way we find out what's, um, <laughs> I hate to say normal because what's normal, but you know, the way, like I remember the way that I learned how to behave appropriately in an office. That was my first job. Well, my first, first real job with a paycheck. Uh, was in an office. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know how to behave. The way we do that is by learning from people who learned um, 
appropriate behavior and getting along with others. And what did they learn that when they were three, you know, from their good, healthy family? So we need those people. Absolutely. But to your point about, you know, here, here was this budget, if I understood you properly, here was this budget specifically for foster kids. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, no, it had that it has to be shared among all of these kids. And when I think about um, well, I'm, you know, I'm from Southern California and the population is 40 million in Orange County alone, where where I lived, there were more than 30,000 homeless kids, 30,000 homeless kids. The majority of homeless kids in the United States, I think it, I think it, California has like the largest percentage, but it makes sense because it's easier to be homeless in California than it is in Nebraska or Michigan, right? Or Pennsylvania. Um, and so there's all these kids. Well, I've worked with some of them. I've gone there and I've talked to them and I've been in the park where they're living this in this one particular area where I lived, you know, and I would, I would go and talk to them and guess what? Some of them really didn't have super traumatic childhoods. Some of them have run away because they don't want to live by the rules of their mom and dad. Some of them come from gated communities. Some of them are wearing $150 sneakers. Some of them have their earbuds and their iPhone and their parents are still paying for all. And I think, wait a minute, as soon as you said that, Don, I'm like, wait, whoa, taking money away from a foster kid? Because there's a ton of need. Like we could, I know Lee with Foster Haven and Foster Care Closet, you could be handed a budget of money and you could make a life transformational difference in the lives of foster kids who you currently cannot serve because you don't have that money. So I, and you know me, I'm one of your biggest fans. I want to see you in every state in the United States. So imagine what would happen if you had that budget. But when I think of that budget, is somebody saying, okay, well, you know, you can't just give to foster kids. You have to give to all the homeless kids. And I think about the homeless kids who came from, you know, a nice home, not good family. And, and the, you know, moms doesn't want them to use marijuana on the weekends or whatever, you know, whatever argument they had about all of that. And I think, wait a minute, if you're not going to give all that money to foster kids and you, and you're going to share it among other kids then that's money away from kids who have nothing else, no one else. And that breaks my heart. And that's going back to lived, sharing our lived experience. Would that really happen, Don? Would that really have happened if successful survivors of childhood trauma had been in the room when that decision was made? I don't know. Yeah. So what do you think, Lee? I just wanted to share a quick story along those lines. Um, so um, I, I started the foster care closet in Foster Haven privately because the department either was unable or did not see the need for putting any attention on how a kiddo is entering into foster care. Um, what are those first hours experience like for our youth? And it is something that I cannot not think about you know, from my own personal journey and from being a foster parent for 13 years to over 20 youth and every single time they show up with nothing. And so I, as the foster parent was scrambling just to get their basic needs met in those first hours, rather than being able to connect with them emotionally. And as a youth that experienced what it was like to not have anything, to lose everything and not have anything. 
um, that's, it's just the fiber of my very being. So I didn't wait for somebody else. I didn't ask permission to do what I was doing. I just did. Um, and I think that that is a, a true, um, a truth that many successful survivors have. They don't wait around for permission to do the right thing. They just go do the right thing. Um, and so, uh, that is one of the ways that we have protected ourselves, um, from situations like what happened with Don. Um, we're private and, and hopefully the story that we share about restoring dignity to these uh, youth in crisis as they're entering into foster care and how we want to also support them through their journey of foster care, that that propels people to action, right? Helping them connect. I can't tell you the number of people who absolutely have never imagined for one second the first hours of foster care for a youth. They, it, it's like kids with the laundry being done. Somebody just magically shows up and my laundry is just magically done. They don't ever think about, well, it has to get sorted and then it has to get washed and dried and then it gets put away. They don't, they don't see any of those steps. Well, the same is true for foster care. As kids enter into foster care, they never think about what's the first step. They just assume that foster families fall out of the sky and they're there just ready to you know, take on whatever age, whatever whatever trauma the kid's bringing with them. And there's never a delay. So it's about telling that story and helping our, our community connect with that story um, that, that has helped us be able to stay independent of um, being told who we have to serve. The second piece to that is through our Haven and that concept, we did work with the state of Nebraska, Department of Health and Human Services, um, to create a space, a, a, a soft landing place, if you will, in regards to how those kids are experiencing their first hours of foster care. That it isn't in a cubicle at the um, at the DHHS offices, right? Um, and so, um, for ten years, I have been fighting with the, uh, and I won't say fighting, we have just been in a strong disagreement <laughs> in regards to how kids in a particular part of our state um, were receiving services versus kids across the rest of the state. And um, two weeks ago, I finally, I made a phone call to one of our department people and I said, I'm tired of telling families that because they live in one particular part of our state, those kids do not have access to the same services everybody else does through our contract with you. And um, they pushed back and said, well, we just don't have the money, blah, blah, blah. And I said, fine, can you meet me halfway? Can you, can you help cover the cost for us to provide the clothes? We'll figure out the rest. We'll figure out how we're going to have a space to operate out of. We'll figure out how we'll have people to, to be there to stand in the gap when these kids need the, the, the clothes. And finally, after 10 years, they have finally said, okay, we'll do that. So to Don, back to Dawn's thing about people deciding who should receive services or how those services should be delivered. So where we have to, as successful survivors, where we really have to start making some noise is we need to start asking, why aren't you invested in improving the lives of these kids, of these youth? What is it that's holding you back from investing so that we can make, because to your point, Rhonda, 
Change isn't going to come from the people who are sitting there reading the textbooks and with all of the right letters behind their name. Change is going to come when someone like myself gets sick of seeing the same thing that happened 50 years ago happening today. And those are the people we need to be investing in. That's how startups work, right? In the corporate world, a startup goes and gets startup funding. Why can we not view the, the changes, the design, the, the purpose even of foster care from within? Why do we keep trying to make it something that somebody who happens to have the right education gets to speak into that? And we're okay investing in that. Right? Yeah. I hear you. I and I agree 100%. I mean, that's how Foster Focus magazine started. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, Foster Haven. What Leap does, I think it's important. Um, I've been on dances with people with PhDs, and I only have a GED. So sometimes we sneak in. Um, yeah, no, it, it, what you're saying is important. The, the, the younger kids have a saying, nothing, with, nothing about us without us. So, you know, I kind of, I like that rule of thumb and I kind of adhere to that. That's why the magazine is mostly firsthand accounts rather than academia uh, studies or thesis. Uh, I, I want people to, to get it right from the people that, that lived it. So exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, Foster Focus magazine, the only publication in the United States that is solely about foster care exists because of a foster kid, to your point, Lee. Don, what do you have to say about all this? Um, so I, I want to add another thing. <laughs> um, so the grow, we call it the grow program where we trained the foster parents and it used to be pride and now it's grow here in Michigan. And I have asked several different DHS workers. I'm like, I just want to come and listen. I want to hear what you guys are teaching them, what you're telling them, what you're talking about, the questions that they're having, because I think it needs to start with this, but with anything is the good, bad, and the ugly all taught. Right. Or we just tell them all the flowery, all oh, these kids are going to they just need love. They just need they just need a warm home. They just know they, they need encouragement and love when they're not being very encourageable or very uh, they're being un, they're being very unlovable. Um, are we telling the parents that? Because when we if we start telling them the good, the bad and the ugly and then they join, they still want to be a family that brings in people, kids and youth that need a home then we know we're, we're going to have long lasting, right? That, I mean, that's what my, my, maybe I'm being naive, but I would think that if you know everything up front and you still want to be a part of it, maybe we would have less moving around. I mean, I moved 12 times between the age of four and nine to different homes, um, group homes and other family homes and whatnot. But I, they said, well, you have to be a DHS worker to go, to go. And I was like, why? I'm asking you, I want to come and be a part of this. You know, and so I just I get really frustrated about that, too. And I'm still going to keep asking. I haven't quit asking. So. I mean, I'm ready to write a letter. I'm ready to get a petition. Together. I mean, for crying out loud, literally on Successful Survivors Foundation letterhead, send a letter and say, seriously, I mean, not. that is just not OK. And well, they said the whole panel and they have foster kids that are there. But my next question to them is, are you really listening to them? Oh yeah, we really listening to them. I can't. Oh, done. You you just you just tickled a little nerve right there for me because I've been in situations where, the, you know, there's there's foster kids on the panel or you know they're they're uh, they're there as speakers you know with other people, and 
which foster kids, which former foster kids did they choose? The 18-year-old, the 21-year-old, you know, uh, the 17-year-old who emancipated six months earlier or whatever. And I think to myself, hello, over here. <laughs> How about those of us who have been out of the system? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having them. I want, I want them to be heard because they're the ones who know what's going on right now. There are a lot of things that have changed since Lee, since you were there, since I was there, you know, but we have the perspective of years of we've worked through a lot of stuff and we're no longer in the victim status. We've moved from victim to surviving and a lot of us have moved from survival mode to thriving and now we're successful survivors our voice should be heard in those kinds of places and i know what you're talking about don because um i got involved with the child welfare league of america in the 1980s the 80s i had big hair and uh yeah so i got involved with the child welfare league of america because they were the oldest and largest child welfare organization in the United States. So I wanted to be there. And oh my word, yeah, okay, the executive director at the time was a wonderful man and I loved him. A lot of people there though, treated me like a performing monkey. Just, I'll just leave that right there. Think about that for a second. Like I was such an anomaly that how could anybody come out of severe child abuse and foster care and, and be a highly functioning business owner, articulate with a fairly robust vocabulary, the ability to do what I had done. I mean, they literally looked at me like I was... She looks good on the outside, but secretly she's probably a sociopath. She might be an axe murderer. We need to, you know, really like keep our distance from her. That's the vibe that I got. And I actually had a psychiatrist who was an active participant at CWLA back then. I said something and this psychiatrist explained to me that the medical model of child welfare in the 1950s essentially said that if you were severely abused when you were a young child, that that did irreparable damage and that that woundedness would come out in your behaviors. And so, and so he said, they actually do expect you to be a psychopath, a sociopath, um, you know, have borderline personality disorder. They, they, they do believe that, you know, good that you're functioning. And what I heard was like, they're so happy that I learned how to go potty by myself and tie my own shoes, but they don't expect me to really be a highly functioning, completely healed and whole human being who's contributing in a meaningful and measurable way to our communities and our nation. And so when you think about People who somewhere that's in the back of their mind, of course they don't want us at those meetings, right? If they really believe that, 
And I'm not saying everybody does. Everybody does not. But some some do, and that's scary. I wanted to um, touch a second on what Chris had to share in regards to nothing about us without us. Um, I think that that speaks to our first segment when we talked about why is it important that people of um, that have been through trauma have an opportunity to connect with each other. That is a perfect example of how change happens because we have laid a foundation that allows them to speak about the trauma that they have endured and not judged them, not made it their fault for the trauma that they endure. They have the the capacity um, and the uh, strength to stand up and say, no more. You don't get to decide for us or our peers who are coming behind us what's best for us without asking us. And um, I think I just, you know, I, I think that there has been so much groundwork laid for this to be a reality for them. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that they're there because I have four that we have adopted. And while their childhood trauma has been minimal, they still have endured it. And there are things that they will have to navigate that is different than my two sons who I gave birth to. And knowing that they are going to be able to do that in a manner which allows them dignity, um, can bring them respect if they do it in the right way, um, rather than shame and silence encourages this mama's heart. Mm, that's really good. So anything else that anybody wants to add to this, this whole um, episode on speaking up? And, and I love how you put it, Lee, making noise, makes making some noise about, about what we've been through and being seen and heard. I mean, that's what Successful Survivors Foundation is all about, is saying, we see you, we hear you, we are you, and we want to hear from people. There's a, um, there's a link in the description that you can reach out to us. You can send us a voice message. Um, there's a place on our website. You can send us a written message if you'd prefer to do it that way. Um, but I don't know. What do you think, Dawn? Um, I was just going to add, you know, Chris, you talked about the statistics, and you're able to rattle those awful statistics up, right? Is there any on resilience, any statistics on resilience of foster kids and how they're doing and what percentage is actually doing well or not psychotic, right? Like, I think, too, like some of those mental health professionals that they're hearing all the bad ones, then what are they, and, and anybody else, what are they supposed to think about us? They're supposed to think, oh, well, you know, you're, okay, wow, you're one out of the, all the other ones that don't have, you know, aren't pregnant, aren't in jail, aren't whatever. But what about the resilience? The, re the things that they're doing to thrive and, and be successful and contribute. Any chance you can do a, a article on that, Chris? Yeah, I could definitely try. Unfortunately, once uh, once we're good out here, we tend to not come back into the system in any form. Uh, we just go out and live our lives, so there's no follow up. So yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting thing to to explore. Uh, a difficult. Uh, thing to do to get all those people who are good to say something because they're good they're not checking in on foster care related stuff they're they're settled into their life so yeah it gets a little tricky but it's a great idea 
That's a good point. I wonder if we could engage. And Don, I love the question. I think that's it's a really great question. Um, there's a place called the Resilience Institute. I just recently was a guest on their podcast. Um, and so it's it's not necessarily about childhood trauma. It's different stories of different people who um, showed resilience and, you know, whatever their area and issue is. But but I wonder if an organization like that, if 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 they would take it on um, or the Child Welfare League of America or Foster Care Alumni of America. I mean, there there are organizations um, that could take this on. And I think it's a really good idea. Um, because I think about, okay, like Chris, how you said, well, you know, only 3% of former foster kids have, um, college education. Okay. So we automatically go to the 97% that don't. Well, what about the 3% who do and celebrating them? And, and what about the, when we talk about, okay, 50% is roughly 50% is what I've heard of foster kids who, wind up homeless at some point in time. And that, that statistic is probably comes from more than one place, but the one I'm thinking of is uh, from the Midwest study that, that followed, I think over 700 kids over four States in the Midwest. And it was a, it was a, um, a study that took place over years. I think it might still be going. Um, but okay. So if 50% of the kids wind up homeless, 50% are not. And what about the kids who are not? you know, who um, are paying their rent or making their house payment or, you know, like they're, they're just, they've, they've created good lives for themselves and they've found their place in the world. And to your point, Chris, I know that a lot of, like for me, before I was sort of outed, um, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to go there. I had to live through it. I didn't want to talk about it. And to me, it was like reliving it. I didn't want to bring it up. And then I found, wound up, living a whole life about all of these issues. So, you know, I, I didn't do a very good job of keeping it all under wraps, but I love your idea, Don, of, of really looking at the people who have, who have um, dug deep and found that resilience. Hey, Rhonda, I know we're, we're trying to wrap up, but I kind of wanted to just leave this as a thought for those who um, are tuning in. And that is, um, I think you touched on it, that, we have, and Chris has touched on the fact that we have a whole group of people who are successful survivors, but they're not, they don't want to go backwards. They don't want to, to go back into what brought them to be a successful survivor. Um, so they may not even be paying attention to foster care issues, but they may stumble upon something like this podcast. And so what I would like to do is, is just leave our listeners with a thought of what can you do? to change the narrative of foster care and how it's perceived in your circle of influence. So to Don's question, are we, are we promoting people who have been successful? Are we intentionally lifting them up? Or do we, do we also fall into the same uh, trap of, it's easier to sell the sad story than it is to promote the positive one. Mm. So I just want to leave listeners with that thought and, and challenge them to think about something they can do to change the narrative of foster care. Ooh, Lee, that's really, really good. Yeah. Because I know there are people who um, have sort of admonished me 
for talking about successful former foster kids under the sort of under the umbrella of if if we if we talk too much about successful former foster kids, we're going to lose our funding for this program and this program. And like people won't think it's as urgent and important as it is to, to, um, you know, to, to invest money into this. And it took me by surprise the first time I heard that because I'm, I'm, I'm the biggest advocate. I think one of the biggest fans of, of investing in foster kids uh, before they are homeless, before they're living in poverty, before they're trafficked, before they're addicted, before, you know, horrible things happen. Because we know lots and lots of research has been done about victims of violence often are victimized again and again and again. And it it just, it's not like it's this weird um, sort of random series of coincidences. It's, okay, if you were abused by a violent person when you were little that's your normal. And you go into toxic relationships with violent people because that it, it's normal, even though it's terribly painful. A lot of people do that. And that's how we perpetuate child abuse. And that's how we perpetuate domestic violence and all that kind of thing. So victims will be victimized again. Survivors will survive. And if we invest money into the lives of kids while they're in care, we can um, I think with the voice of survivors weighing in and sharing the wisdom that we've acquired along the way, we can help them to create and be responsible for the creation of their good lives when they exit care. I just think that we might have something valuable to add to helping kids in what you're doing, like with Foster Haven, when you're involved on the very first entry point, you, you you can't not be positively influencing the whole rest of the experience in foster care and the exit. I think we have a lot to say. Anybody have anything to add before we sign off on this one? All right. Thank you for being with us. We want to hear from you too. So click the link in the description, subscribe and share this with everybody you know who had a rough childhood. We want to hear from you because we, we're, we're your people, we're your tribe. We 100% believe that you acquired wisdom and abilities and character traits along the way as you survived whatever you went through. And we want to hear about it because what you know for sure can help other people. All right. See you next time.